And we're going to have a seat and get your Bibles out and turn to the book of Job. Job chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning, continuing through our sermon series uh, in the book of Job that we've titled Righteous Suffering. Uh, And as you're turning to Job chapter 4, in fact, we're going to do chapters 4 through 7 this morning. Uh, So we've got a lot of real estate to cover. and, And I would encourage you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, we have a number of those uh, in the lobby. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Uh, but as you're turning to Job chapter 4, uh, let, me, let me just um, start by asking this question that I think will help us to uh, get into the space that God's Word is going to move us this morning. Uh, but yeah, have you ever had someone who's close to you, a family member, a friend, uh, so, so someone who's close to you that were well-intentioned in giving you counsel or comfort or care, uh, but the counsel and the comfort and the care that they gave to you was not helpful, but actually it was harmful or painful? You ever been there? Right, anyone? Come on, raise your hands if you've been there. Right, a number of us. Now, now um, in as much as many of us have been on that end of it, I, I wonder how many of us have been on the other side of that equation where we thought we were the ones giving comfort. Dan Cooksey's already like, yep, guilty. Uh, I am with you, brother, right? Uh, where, where we're giving counsel and comfort and care, but what we're actually giving is, is pain and hurt and harm. I was eight or nine years old. A number of us were over at my grandparents' house. My grandparents lived on a really busy street in Flagstaff, and we were all upstairs, and we were watching an arena football game. Do you remember when that was a thing? Okay, and we were watching an arena football game, and the Arizona Rattlers were on, and they were like the only team in Arizona that was even remotely good uh, in, the, in the 90s. Um, but, but they were playing, and maybe it was even a playoff game, and uh, on this road we heard this loud, screeching uh, car coming to an abrupt stop, and then we heard people, uh, shrieking and screaming or a couple of people. And so a number of my family ran downstairs and outside. I was content to just look out the window and try to figure out what was going on. And uh, after a couple moments of not being able to see it, I went ahead and spent the last 10 minutes or the next 10 minutes watching the end of the game. Uh, but none of the rest of the family came up. So I finally made my way out front. And there are a number of my family members are gathered around my grandparents next door neighbor who was sobbing and crying and come to find out that her cat had been hit and run over by that car. And so there was this awkward pause, this awkward silence in that moment, and uh, just being really, really uncomfortable, I just spoke up and said, well, hey, on a brighter note, at least the Rattlers won. Um, and I just got a lot of, <laughs> a lot of sideways stares uh, from my family members, and I think one of my uncles finally just said, why don't you go back inside? Uh, and so I just, you know, slinked back in, uh, embarrassed at what had happened. Now, here's the deal. It was well-intentioned. It just was not executed well. And as we come to Job chapter 4, we're going to see that exact same dynamic playing out. I think Eliphaz, at least at this part in the process, is well-intentioned. We get later in the book, I don't even think the friends are well-intentioned. They're just bitter and angry. But here, they're still well-intentioned. And and their desire is for good, uh, but their counsel is not going to be executed well. And Job, right off his lament and breaking this week of silence in chapter 3, laments, and now the, the friends... Friends uh, begin to speak into the situation that's going on here. And, and let me just say this here at the outset, because uh, one of the themes that is going to begin to uh, come out in Job chapter 4 and following, and we're going to see run throughout uh, the speech cycles of the friends and back and forth between Job, is this contrast that exists between uh, the Job's friends, and they have this simplistic, uh, reductionistic, religious approach to life, and their counsel that comes with it is rooted in that. And while, while it will seemingly make life clean and easy, what it's going to reveal is that they lack any sense of true understanding and true hope. And in contrast to that, Job is going to wrestle and grapple and struggle with God and God's sovereign purpose. And it's going to be messy and it's going to be confusing and it's going to be disorienting to him. But in the end, it's going to lead him to a place of deeper understanding and a deeper level of trust between himself and the Lord. And loved ones, if we're going to gather anything in these next number of weeks as we move through these speech cycles, you and I have got to be willing to wrestle and to grapple uh, with, with the things that we just can't quite wrap our arms around in life. And so here's where I think God's word is going to lead us this morning. It's around this idea right here that comfort and when I say comfort, I'm talking about any aspect, any attempt at comfort. So soul 
and, and care and counsel, that comfort that is absent of the gospel is a comfort that is empty of any help or of any hope. This is where God's word is going to push us. And, and so uh, really I want us to approach this with, with two different things in mind. One is that it would be instructive for you and I. That, that, that as we navigate this text, that, that you and I would think not only about ourselves but others and that we would be counselors and that we would be comforters that, that would do so in a manner that is honoring and pleasing to the Lord because it's rooted in gospel truth, not absent of gospel truth, which is what we're going to see in Eliphaz. But then secondly, that it also challenge us that in our own lives and ways we speak into other people's lives, that as we give comfort, that the only source of comfort that we can ever give to anybody is rooted in the gospel and the finished work of Jesus. That we, we don't help anyone in any way, shape, or form in giving them some form of moralism or deism or things of that nature. And so before we go any further, we would do well to stop and to pray and to ask God to give us wisdom and insight for all that he's going to unfold for us here uh, this morning. So why don't you pray with me uh, before we go any further. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the wisdom and the insight and the counsel that your word unfolds and expounds to us. And we pray, God, that we would willingly hear from you that our hearts and our minds would be open, that we would be submitted to the movement and the work of your spirit, that your spirit would have the freedom to come and have your way with us. And so whether we need to be encouraged or challenged or um, God, maybe convicted or, 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 or you're going to prompt us to action, whatever it is that you would have for us, we pray that the spirit would be free to move and work within us. And God, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. And this morning, I pray uh, for really one of my best friends in the area, for Spencer Brown and for Spencer City Church. God, I thank you for this dear brother and this dear friend. And God, I pray for that body of believers and for those uh, people who love you, that you would help them to be comforters, to be counselors who love you, who point people towards you uh, because they love the gospel and the hope that's found in your finished work. So inasmuch as we pray that for them, we ask that you would do the same for us as well. And so, Lord Jesus, come and have your way with us now. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is When Comfort is Empty. When Comfort is Empty, which hopefully is not the comfort that you and I uh, would offer to others. But if we're going to be honest, at points and times in our life, this has been true. Um, and just real quick, just, just, just a brief uh, con- point of context for us over the next number of weeks. Uh, but we now, starting in chapter 4 and going all the way through chapter 26, uh, this is what's referred to as the speech cycles. And so each of Job's friends are going to speak. Uh, and, and after they speak, Job will respond. And there's uh, each of them speak. And there's three cycles of them speaking, although the third cycle is actually cut short. And so at the end of 26 uh, ends the speech cycles. Uh, but this is on the front end. And so Eliphaz is much more uh, accommodating at this point. But as we move through uh, the book, we'll see a deepening division uh, that's going to happen between Job and between uh, his friends. Uh, but but this, this morning, we get really probably the kindest, gentlest uh, rebuke of any of the speech cycles. And just so you know, we won't do all of the cycles. In fact, we'll do four of the eight cycles. Uh, and so next week, we'll do one from Zophar. And then the following two weeks, uh, we'll do uh, a couple of Bildad's uh, speech speeches. And so we'd encourage you to lean into uh, the ones that we don't do. And we have the, uh, the, the, the preaching outline in the, in the lobby if uh, you don't have that already. So you can be doing some work on your own. Uh, but this morning, as we look at these four chapters, and you have two chapters where Eliphaz is speaking in chapter 4 and 5. And then Job responds in chapter 6 and 7. Really structurally, there's, there's two dynamics that's, that, that, that are at play. One is Eliphaz and what he says. And we've just titled this Eliphaz's Religious Council. And we've put religious in quotes, and I'll get to that in a moment. And then you have Job's gospel uh, response. And we put gospel in quotes, and we'll unpack that when we get to that. But look at chapters 4 and 5 here, and, and this notion of Eliphaz's religious counsel. And before I begin to read any of this, and I won't read all of it, though we will read a decent portion of this, uh, what, what I want to just make note of right out of the gate is that Eliphaz's religious counsel, and we say religious, what, what we're talking about here is, is works-oriented, moralistic, obligatory approaches to God. It, it's the notion that I earn God's favor with my behavior. If I'm good, then God loves me. 
And that's garbage. But it's the religious council that Eliphaz is going gonna, is gonna to lay out. And, and I'm telling you this because you and I are going to come to points in the text where we might look at this and might go, that looks like pretty good counsel. I actually told someone that last week. And now I'm being told it's bad counsel. Here's the problem with his counsel and with moralistic religious counsel is it becomes utterly destructive when it is a substitute for the gospel, which is what it is, right? When it's a substitute for gospel-oriented counsel. And so in summary, over the two chapters, let me just give you up front, here's essentially five points that Eliphaz has for Job. He tells Job to be consistent in his thinking. He tells Job to be honest about his lot in life. He tells Job to be realistic about his life. He tells Job to be humble in his approach. And he tells Job to be submissive to God. Those are the five points that he gives over the course of these two chapters. And you might look at those and go, man, I actually really like that. That's good counsel. That's helpful. But what you and I have to realize is that moralistic counsel, when it's stripped of the gospel work and it's stripped of gospel hope, isn't good counsel. It's dangerous and destructive counsel. And, and here's why it's dangerous and destructive is it minimizes the gospel hope that we have. And here's the real issue in this is it makes our work and it makes our effort the center of what's going on and not the finished work of Jesus. See, moralistic religious counsel and moralistic and religious living makes you and I the savior of our situation, not Jesus Christ. And this is what Eliphaz is pointing Job towards. So let's walk through each of these here Uh, briefly. You can see each of them and where they're located. So the first is this, uh, be consistent in your thinking, Job. That's what he tells him. Uh, Chapter four, verse one, Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, if one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Then he begins to talk about a lot of the good things that Job has done in verse 3 and 4. Behold, you've instructed many, and you've strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you've made firm the feeble knees. He's like, Job, you've helped people before. Verse 5, but now it's come to you, and you're impatient. It touches you, and you're dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence in the integrity of your ways, your hope? And, and really what he's saying is, hey, listen, um, you helped other people, but now you find yourself in a similar situation and you think it's different. He's saying you have to be consistent in your thinking. And part of what's driving Eliphaz to say this is the retributive principle, which is what he starts to lean heavily into starting in verse 7. Look at what he says. Remember who that was innocent ever perished or where were the upright cut off? As I've seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they're consumed here without reservation, without any hint of slowing down. He's leaning heavily into this notion of the retributive principle, which, remember, is is the idea that if you're righteous, you'll be blessed. And if you're sinful or if you're wicked, you'll be cursed. It's a cause and effect approach to our spirituality. Now, now Job at some level would have believed this as well, but as he's um, beginning to suffer more and more, and he knows he hasn't done anything wrong, he's beginning to uh, reject this. But this way of thinking, the retributive principle has no category that allows for suffering in any way, shape, or form to be connected to righteousness. And so this question, look at verse 7, this question that's posed He's like, Job, I want you to remember who that was innocent ever perished. It's like, man, no one who's innocent dies. The guilty perish. And what's he insinuating to Job? You're guilty of something. Now, now, now it's kind and it's more indirect here. It will get far more direct and far more pointed and, and just far harsher as we move through the book. But he's like, surely you've done something. It's similar to the sentiment. Do you remember in Acts 28, Paul and there's that shipwreck and they end up swimming in him and all the prisoners swim into the island of Malta and they're building that fire. And out of the fire, a viper comes and it bites him. And everyone's sitting around the fire going, this man must have been a murderer 
which was true, ironically. Uh, but, but they're saying justice has found him while he escaped uh, the death in the sea. Now he's getting what's really coming to him. And then, of course, Paul shook it off and went about his business. And after a few minutes, they're like, this guy's not a murderer. He's a god. And they begin to worship him. He's like, no, no, no. Right? And he begins to share the gospel with them. But it's that same sentiment that justice is going to find you out. And Eliphaz is saying, hey, listen, the innocent don't die, Job. The innocent don't suffer. The guilty suffer. But ironically, unbeknownst to Eliphaz, part of what he's beginning to do is he's beginning to build a gospel foundation that's going to help us to see an innocent one who will suffer. See, while there's no category in Eliphaz's world and in Eliphaz's mind that an innocent one can suffer righteously, he's beginning to give us a category and a framework to understand so that when Jesus shows up, while we still don't fully understand it, while we still can't totally wrap our mind around this, we do have at least some context to understand an innocent one who will suffer and will perish. So he's saying, be consistent in your thinking. Secondly, he tells them in the second half of chapter 4, be honest about your lot. Look at what he says, verse 12. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. And then in verses 13 through 16, he starts to talk about this vision that he has. Look at what he says. Amid thoughts from the visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice, right? Here's this voice that brings to him stealthily this word. And then in verses 17 through 21 is what this voice tells him in this supposed vision. Here it is. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants, he puts no trust. In his angels, he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth between morning and evening. They're beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die and that without wisdom? And he's saying, Job, you've got to be honest about your lot. And not in the sense that Job is lying about something, but the sense of being honest about where he finds himself. Notice verse 12, where Eliphaz starts this section. A word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Saying, Job, I, I heard something about you. I was told something about you. I mean, this is cruel, honestly, what Eliphaz is doing here in this moment. Job, I got a special word on what was, what's really going on. Something came to me. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read this, th- th- this has very much the same sentiment and the same feel as anonymous criticism. Ever been on the wrong end of someone saying, hey, you know, people are saying... But we don't know what people, and we don't know how many people, and we don't know exactly what they're saying. This is what Eliphaz is doing to Job. And just a brief note here about anonymous criticism. I think this is fair in light of what Eliphaz is doing. Just so we're clear, anonymous criticism is not biblical, and it resembles nothing along the lines of gospel community. In fact, it's the opposite of that. See, because biblical community is honest with one another. Biblical community is willing to own what I believe and what I will and won't say in the presence of others. And so, loved ones, let me just be really straight on this. If you're not willing to own it, you have no business saying it. If you can't attach your name to that, don't say it. And and that's how you and I uh, should be responding. Further, think about the person on the other end of that. When you're on the wrong end of anonymous criticism, how do you resolve that? How do you remedy that? How do you fix that? You can't. Which is why it's not biblical. right? God calls us to be able to resolve conflicts with one another, but if I can't resolve a conflict that I don't even know that I have with someone because I don't know who it is, it can't be made right There's just no place for this in our interaction with one another. And what Eliphaz is doing here is cruel. Hey, Job, I've heard some things. And so he gets to, after describing this vision and this this odd figure who's sharing this secret word with him, 
In verse 17, he gets to what is actually said. And I don't know about you, but I think it's kind of anticlimactic after the vision. And he's building this up in this mysterious figure. And, and, and even Eliphaz is having a hard time discern this. And, and here's what he says. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? You're like, tell me something I don't already know. I know this. And he goes on and he talks about that, 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 that we're made of dust and, and we'll be crushed like the moth. And, and even though we know this, what do we do with this? Now, what Eliphaz doesn't understand, but you and I, as we look back on this through the lens of the gospel... In one sense, we we would wholeheartedly agree with Eliphaz. We know that we can't be right before God. We know that we could never be pure before God. But then in this this, this wild shift, in this, this wild twist of what God does, you and I actually can be and will be right before God. See, this is what's so striking about Jesus' sacrificial death in your place and in my place. See, there's no framework in Job's day. There's not even really a framework in your day and my day in a lot of ways that understands a righteous man who suffers unjustly, but it's even wilder to have one who will suffer intentionally for the well-being of rebellious individuals being brought to salvation. And yet that's exactly what Christ does for us. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 3. If you want to flip over to Romans 3, just so you don't think I'm making this up, I'd encourage you to do this. But here's what he says. Romans 3.10, Paul says, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So it lets you think, well, I'm not like other people. Yes, you are. You do not pursue God. And you are not righteous in and of yourself. And then Paul goes on with that. I won't read all of it, but he continues to unpack all of the ways that we're not righteous. Jump down to verse 21. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He says, for there's no distinction. And he's been talking earlier about Jews and Gentiles. There's no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. There we are again, falling short, right? At odds with God, none righteous, but look what he says next. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's a sacrifice, right? God put Jesus forward as a sacrifice to take your place, to take my place so that we could be reconciled to God. And so while Eliphaz here is, is unpacking that no mortal can be right before God, in one sense we read that and we go, yes, uh, of course that's true, Eliphaz. But through the lens of the gospel, there's a sense in which he says, can, man, can mortal man be in the right before God? Emphatically we would say, yes, because of the finished work of Jesus. So radically different than the counsel that's being offered to Job in this moment. Be consistent in your thinking. Be honest about your lot. Thirdly, he says this, and we'll start to pick it up here uh, and move a little bit quicker. Uh, Look at the beginning of chapter 5. He says, be realistic about your life. He's like, man, be realistic. Look at what he says in verse 1. Call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Here's really what he's saying. Who's going to advocate for you? Who's going to mediate for you? Who's going to speak on your behalf? And again, through the lens of the gospel, we're going, well, I, I know of one. This is what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, that that this is what Jesus does. He's the mediator between God and man. And I want you to just just at this moment pause for a second and just to consider the harmful reality of counsel that's absent and devoid of gospel perspective and gospel thinking. And how quickly it becomes destructive and not helpful and redemptive. Right? Be realistic about your life. Let's be realistic about the gospel and what it does. Number four, he tells him to be humble in his approach. Look at verse eight, chapter five. He goes, as for me, he's saying, okay, listen, Job, uh, if I were you, here's what I'd do. And then let's be honest, these next couple of verses sound really good. 
I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. And then he starts to talk about God's common grace. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and their schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. Right? He, he's going on and on and on about all the good things that God does. Now, here's what's interesting. Eliphaz is telling Job to be humble in his approach. Job is already doing this and he's being rebuked by Eliphaz for doing this. But we're, our, our temptation is to look particularly at these verses and to go, man, I, I, what's wrong with what he's saying here? And here's what's wrong. It's not that the council is inherently flawed. It's the system the council is framed in. Right? What, what Eliphaz has is this neat, clean system. If you do A, you get B. He, he's reduced God and righteousness and faith to a formula. But the system fails to make any sense of suffering. It fails to make it redemptive. It fails to make it worthwhile. It fails to make it glorious. It actually, if anything, he's making Job's suffering worthless in this. And we do the same thing if we want to give trite, moralistic, religious responses to friends and family members who are suffering or a trial or tragedy, and we fail to point them to the finished work of Christ. He finishes... By telling Job to be submissive to God. And again, you might look at this and go, that seems like really good counsel. Mike, you say that almost every week. I do, but notice the distinction. Look at verse 17 and 18 where he lays this out. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. We might read that and go, oh, we should go to Hebrews 12. Well, hold on. Verse 18, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. And we might go, let's go to Isaiah 53. And both of those things are true. But here's where we would differ wildly from Eliphaz. Look at where he goes on and what he goes on to say. Verse 19, he'll deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he'll redeem you from death. And in war, the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue. You shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine you shall laugh, and you shall not fear the beasts of the earth. And he's going on and on and on. This is really an Old Testament version of the prosperity gospel. If you will be submissive to God, then God will give you... Here's the irony of everything that's happened. Eliphaz doesn't know and Job doesn't know. No one has been more submissive to God than Job has. And Job has experienced the opposite of everything that Eliphaz has laid out here at the end of chapter 5. See, in, in, in this, this, this odd sense, Eliphaz suggesting if you'll submit to God, God's going to protect you, he's going to bring you health, he's going to bring you vitality, he's going to make your life really good. And what Eliphaz is actually doing, unbeknownst to him, is he is functioning as the mouthpiece of Satan in this moment. Because Satan said the very same things in chapters 1 and chapter 2. Did he not? Right? That God himself wasn't worth following. But if you'll be submissive to God, then you get all the blessings. You get all the benefits. All the good stuff that comes with him. And this is what Eliphaz is finishing his argument with. And I want you to think from Job's perspective. Just how cutting and painful this must have been. Right, the, the, the very man who had lost everything, not because of his sin, but because of the very righteousness that Eliphaz is exhorting him toward. Loved ones, you, you and I need to be very, very slow and very, very careful to assume, to assume that we know the purposes and the motives of God. Eliphaz has made that mistake and gives horrendous counsel because of it. He gives religious counsel. Now, you, you, you might go, okay, um, I, I, I see that. I see it empty of the gospel. Uh, let me just unpack a little bit further why Eliphaz's counsel is empty. Let me give you three things that hopefully is helpful for us uh, as we consider this in our own life and the people around us. First of all, um, he fails to see the extreme nature of Job's suffering. Right? Job was not an average man who had an average tragedy befall him. 
Uh, Job was notably righteous and Job was notably wealthy. And Job noticed uh, and, and experienced this extreme level of suffering. You, you could argue that Job's suffering and loss is unparalleled in human history. And part of what I think Job is doing for us, for you and I, as we consider the whole counsel of God's word, is Job is functioning as a type of Christ or a type for Christ. Inasmuch as Job is notably righteous and notably wealthy and he will suffer, Christ is far more righteous. He possesses all things and he will suffer more intensely than Job does, even though he is more righteous than Job is. So Eliphaz fails to miss the severity and the extremity of what's happening here. Secondly, he fails to see that suffering is not always correlated to discipline. That's a word some of you desperately need to hear today. That suffering is not always correlated to discipline. Sometimes it has nothing to do with discipline. Job is exhibit A for this. Now Eliphaz's thinking is largely tied to the retributive principle in this. Right, which in our context, I would argue, is just an older version of the prosperity gospel. But he fails to understand the nature and the reality of suffering in the life of a follower of Jesus. That it's not always cause and effect. That suffering can accomplish the sovereign purposes of God in your life and in mine. And so in this, right, in Job's context, in your context, in my context, as suffering is unfolding, there's this dimension that becomes oddly beautiful. Because it brings hope and it brings purpose and it brings perseverance and it brings redemption with it. Because the suffering is tied to the sovereign work of God, not some causal effect to something that's going on in my life. And Oh, how some of us need to hear this. That your suffering is not in vain. It's not useless. It's not wasted. It's not purposeless. God is doing something with it. You just can't see it yet. And you got to be able to hold on to that. Suffering is not always correlated to discipline. Thirdly, he fails to see that suffering has gospel purposes. Now, let me treat this as both believer and non-believer. Let me start with the non-believer. So on any given Sunday morning, I would never, ever presume that every person sitting in this room is a believer. Um, and so if there are Sunday mornings where that's true, okay, great. You can share this with your non-believing friend, but I'm just never going to make that presumption. And so I'm going to assume on any given Sunday morning that as I look out, there are people that are sitting here that are not followers of Jesus. Right? You, 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 you maybe believe in, in, in a moralism or maybe you believe in some Americanized version of Christianity or maybe you are truly a skeptic or you're a seeker or you're like, man, this is all foreign to me. But if you are a non-believer, and that means you have not turned from your sin and trusted in Christ and in him alone for your re- redemption and reconciliation before God, then, then you would be a non-believer. You're not a believer or a follower of Jesus. And what this suffering does, the gospel purpose that it has for you, is the temporary and limited nature of suffering in this life is a shadow of the full and comprehensive and complete, permanent, and eternal suffering that is to come in the next life if you are not to repent and get right before God. Do you remember Jesus in Luke 13? And the people come to him and they're talking about these couple of different tragedies. There's uh, the Galileans that were, that, that, that seemed like they were slain or murdered probably by the Romans. And then there was the tower of Siloam that fell. And they're saying, were these people worse sinners? And Jesus is like, that's not even the issue. The issue is whether or not you repent and are restored to God. And if you're a non-believer here this morning, the gospel purpose is, Your suffering is a shadow of a far greater suffering that will come if you're not restored and made right before God. For those who are believers, and you're looking at your suffering and going, what what are the gospel purposes in my life for suffering? Here's two, and there's more than two, uh, but two that I'll mention. One, that in our suffering, we share and, and identify with Christ and his suffering. The Apostle Paul says this wild thing in Colossians 1, where he talks about filling up the afflictions and filling up the sufferings of Christ as he suffers. 
You're like, what is that about? It's a mind bender. But there's this aspect where you and I suffer and we're helping to fill up the afflictions and the suffering with Christ. And in doing so, we identify with him. Secondly, for the believer, our suffering becomes a pathway to gospel witness for a world that doesn't have a category to understand suffering. See, moralistic counsel, religious counsel to those who are suffering, to those who are in trial, to those who are in despair, that doesn't help. That just makes it worse. It's gospel cross-centered counsel to those that are suffering. That's what's going to bring hope and redemption. Eliphaz has only given Job the former, which is what prompts Job to respond in chapter 6 and 7. And so let's look at Job's response here in chapter 6 and 7. And really two aspects to Job's response in chapter 6. Job responds to his friends in chapter 7. Job is responding to God. Uh, But we just titled it as this, Job's gospel response. Now you might be going, Mike, Job did not fully understand the gospel. I'm aware of that. Okay, I, I, I know that. And while Job is not deliberately thinking about the gospel, we need to remember what Jesus has told us about the whole of the scriptures. Remember in Luke 24, what does Jesus say on multiple occasions? The law, the Psalms, and the prophets, they're all about who? Tell me, who are they about? They're about him, right? And, and, and so, so maybe Job doesn't fully understand what he's saying in this moment, but here's who knows exactly what Job is saying. Right, the author of the scriptures, right? the, the, the one who, who, who breathed all of them into existence. So while Job doesn't have the, the risen, resurrected Messiah in mind the way that you and I do, God most certainly does. And this is why we would title this Job's Gospel Response. Dave Helm has a great line uh, with respect to this. He says that Jesus is the interpretive center of the whole of the scriptures. And that's how you and I uh, need to look at this in the Old Testament, understanding that while they maybe didn't fully understand it, God did. So look at chapter 6, Job's response to his friends. And here Job begins to push against the retributive principle. And in verses 1 through 13, we see Job speaking about the, the deep pain that he's experiencing in his suffering. Look at what he says. Verse 2, oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balances. Okay, how heavy would it be, Job? Here's how heavy. Verse 3, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. That's how weighty this is on him. Therefore, my words have been rash. Verse 4, for the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. And and Job's speaking not that that God is actually trying to kill him, right? But but speaking to the sense of distance that exists between him and God, which is perceived by Job, not in reality from God. uh, But that's where Job is at and how he feels. And he's expressing this. Verse 5, 6, and 7, Job talks about the counsel of his friends. And he's literally saying, it's inedible. I can't eat what you're trying to feed me. I can't stomach it. It's so repulsive. And then you get to verse 8, and he says this, Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would fulfill my hope. What is that, Job? That it would please God to crush me. That he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait, and what is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? He's saying, I'm empty. I've got nothing left. And this deep pain in suffering. And he's telling his friends, you guys are clueless to the pain and the hurt that I'm experiencing. But I want us to focus on verses 8 through 13 here for just a moment. Where Job gets to really the the crescendo of this first part of his argument, oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Here's what Job's saying. He's saying, I I, I would be okay. I I would uh, tolerate. I would even rejoice if God would crush me. Why, Job? Because it would remove the possibility and the temptation that I would potentially betray or deny my God. Look what he says in verse 10. 
This would be my comfort. I would even exalt in pain unsparing. And really, maybe a better way for us to read uh, the, the end of verse 10 is, for then I would not have denied the words of the Holy One. <laughs> Don't you, if God kills me, I didn't deny him. I didn't betray him. I wasn't unfaithful to him. I mean, here we get to see his heart. I mean, this is truly incredible. He said, I'd rather die than fail God. Loved ones, I wonder if we have that same depth of conviction around betraying and failing God. Am I willing to see God honored in my life even if it requires my death? Am I more concerned with my well-being or honoring God and remaining steadfast and faithful to him? I mean, this is stunning what Job is saying here. That I'm willing to suffer and to be crushed so long as I don't betray and deny my God. There's deep pain and suffering. And then he turns his attention specifically to the counsel of his friends. And he tells them that there's deep pain and empty religion. There's deep pain in your empty counsel, Eliphaz. That's essentially what he's saying. He's addressing the the emptiness of Eliphaz's moralism. Look at verse 14. You might want to underline this verse here. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. That reads more like a proverb than anything else, doesn't it? And that word kindness there, it's the the, the Hebrew word kesed, which the root word hesed is is God's loving kindness that we talk often about in, in, in the Old Testament. But it's this covenant loyalty and love that's shared between two individuals. And Job's saying, you've withheld that from me because you gave me this empty, dead, lifeless, religious, moralistic counsel. And then he tries to illustrate the emptiness and the deadness of Eliphaz's counsel. Look at verse 15 and following. He says, My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself. When they melt, they disappear. When it's hot, they vanish from their place. So what he's talking about is in in, in this desert context in the winter, you might have snow or ice that would build up in, in, in little wadis or little oasis in the, in the crags of, of the different mountainous areas. And, and those who would travel through in the caravans knew where these were. And so notice what he goes on to say in verse 18. The caravans turn aside from their course. They go up into the waste and perish. He's saying that these caravans that are running low on water, they're like, wait, I know there's water up in the hills. And so they expend all that they have left, hoping to find water, except what do they find? They find that it's dry. Verse 19, the caravans of Tima look, the travelers of Sheba hope. They're ashamed because they're confident. They come there and they're disappointed. For you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. And this imagery of these people wandering through the desert. Now, now I don't know about you. Have you ever been on a hike where you're, you're just dry and parched? You ever been there and, and, and roof starting to stick to the top of your mouth? And maybe you've been out in the wilderness and you're getting a little bit delirious and you're starting to lose your mind. And so just imagine, right, these guys are out on this caravan and they know they're far enough away from the next community that we can't make it. And the guy's like, yeah, but I know up in the hills there's the water. And so they expend all their resources to get up. And what do they find? They find what they think is going to be water. And they're like, oh, finally, we've got it. And they open up. And how desperate. I mean, even as I'm talking about being thirsty, I'm getting a little bit thirsty. I don't know about you. You're getting thirsty. And you're like, I can't wait, except it's empty. And so not only is it empty, now it's become deadly. And this is what Job is telling them. Your counsel is lethal. Because it offers no hope. It doesn't point us to the cross. It doesn't lead us to Jesus. It doesn't make any of this redemptive. Loved ones, this is the pain and empty religion. And God, help us that we would not give dead, empty, lifeless counsel. But that we would be pointing those in trial and tragedy and hardship towards the life-giving reality of the finished work of Jesus. Job moves from his response to his friends 
And he turns and now he responds to God in chapter 7. And just briefly here for the sake of time, just real quick, looking at chapter 7. Two things that Job does in, in, in chapter 7. Uh, in verses 1 through 10, he talks about the futility of his life. He talks about the futility of his life. Uh, verse 3, I'm allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night is long and I'm full of tossing till the dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. These verses are describing both the difficulty and the brevity of his life. Um, The first part of Job chapter 7 is kind of like reading a depressed rainy day version of Ecclesiastes. you, You want to talk about utterly futile. It's like he just took it to the next level. He's talking about the futility of his life. And then on the back half of the chapter, he's asking God for relief. He's like, I'm not going to restrain my mouth, verse 11. I'm going to speak in the anguish of my spirit. I'll complain in the bitterness of my soul. And God help us that all of us would be honest before God in that same manner. Right last week, talking about lament, that this would be true of us, that we would be honest and face God. And he goes on and he talks about verse 16. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are a breath. And then this fascinating verse that sounds eerily similar to Psalm 8. What is man that you make so much of him, that you set your heart on him. You visit him every morning and test him every moment. And yet Job again in verse 19 asks for God to leave him alone. There's something ironic that often many of us, when we're in a time of trial, we feel that God is distant. And yet what Job is saying is, is he's talking about the relentless pursuit and presence of God in his life. And wanting relief and the confusion around God. I, you, you make so much of us and yet I feel like I'm forgotten and insignificant in the first part of chapter 7. And so what do we learn from Job's response? Let me give us three things with respect to Job's response that hopefully are helpful for you and I today and beyond. First of all, that an honest wrestling with life leads to greater understanding. That's a a horrendously generic statement and it's intentional. Um, But you and I, an honest wrestling, right? An honest wrestling with life, an honest wrestling with tragedy, an honest wrestling with strife and trial and trouble and turmoil, that it's going to lead to a greater understanding. And not all of it, listen to me, not all of it is going to be this side of eternity. So you got to just hold on to that reality. Let me run ahead a bit to the back half of the book. Because this is going to become more and more pronounced as we move throughout the book of Job. And Job is committed to wrestling through these difficult and disorienting events. Eliphaz is committed to his clean and neat system. And at the end of this... Job is going to come to this place where he's going to have a depth of understanding. He's going to have a depth of trust. He's going to have a a, a depth of confidence in God that simply would not have existed before. Eliphaz will have none of that. But the process to that, loved ones, is a willingness to grapple and to strive and to wrestle through the difficulties of life. If you want to ignore them, if you want to pretend like they're not there, if you want to check out from them, I can't stop you from doing that. I'm just telling you what you will miss out on in the end. An honest wrestling with life leads to greater understanding. Secondly, kind of the inverse of this, a robotic approach undermines understanding and hope. Right? So Eliphaz has this robotic approach, but but, but he, he misses the whole point. And he strips Job of any understanding or hope, right? Well, the gospel is clear. It's not always clean and it's not always easy. Sometimes, in fact, many times gospel living is is messy and it's gritty and grimy and muddled and jumbled. And you and I have to be willing to run from this systematic, clean cut approach to suffering and tragedy and trial and to live in that messy, unknown space. There's no hope in moralism. There's no hope in religious talk. There's no understanding. There's nothing that's redemptive about that. Neat, worldly, practical advice is not godly advice. 
And a robotic approach undermines understanding and hope. Thirdly, this one's simple and yet profound. Loved ones, our words matter. What do we learn from Job's response that our words matter? And I'm thinking specifically of Eliphaz here. See, gospel-saturated counsel would have brought healing and comfort to Job. It would not have made everything go away. It wouldn't solve all of the issues in front of him. But it would have been a, a, a starting point to begin to move Job to a place of beholding God once again. To see the redemptive nature in suffering. But moralistic religious counsel just brings actually greater confusion and despair. And so for us, as we think about the words that we utter, as we counsel and encourage and bring solace and comfort and care, let us remember that our words matter. And what our words should be pointing us and others towards is to the finished work of Christ. Because, loved ones, that's the only hope that we have to give to one another. Now, as we close, here's here's what I want to do to close. I want us to just be able to ask God to help us in this. Because we, we, we all need help in this. And, and so, um, Dwayne, can we put that next slide up? So here's three things. Just in, in, in light of what we just saw from Job's response, uh, here's what I want us to do. Let's put all three of them up there, Dwayne. Um, God, help me to be willing to wrestle through the difficulties in my life. God, help me to fight against a robotic, systematic approach to suffering and tragedy. God, help me to take serious the words that I, uh, that I utter and the significance of their impact. And I don't want to just put those on the screen. I want you and I to go before the Lord and through the power of the Spirit, wrestle through those things right now. So you take a moment between yourself and the Lord uh, to, to, to wrestle through and ask God to help you with those. And then I'll wrap us up here in a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And sometimes it's firm, sometimes it's encouraging, sometimes it can be cutting, sometimes it's all at the same time. But God, we pray that in light of this back and forth between Eliphaz and Job, in light of the ways that his comfort was empty and cold, God, that this would be a great reminder for us of our need of of, of gospel counsel and gospel hope, God, that, that, that we would be willing to wrestle through the difficulties of life, that we would not be cold and trite, that we would not want to be robotic or, 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 or quick to just get at some solution, but that we'd be willing to lean into the messiness and the brokenness and, and helping people to navigate these things. And that, God, we pray that you would help us to take serious the words that we utter and that we share with one another and the ways in which we choose to counsel and how we direct and and encourage and, and push one another, seeing that there is a deep significance in their impact. And so, God, we pray, we pray that you would help us to do this. God, for your name's sake, would you help this to be true of us? So Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.